Hello and welcome to Business Line Podcasts. Why does India promise so much and deliver way short of that? Naushad Forbes, co-chairman of Forbes Marshall and former CII president, takes a deep dive into this question in his book, The Struggle and the Promise: Restoring India's Potential. Forbes narrative envelops industry, higher education, institutions, design thinking, culture and diversity, liberally sprinkled with R.K. Lakshman's cartoons. In an interview with Business Line's B. Bhaskar and Vinay Kamath, Forbes talks about what's holding India back and what's the way forward. Thank you for tuning in. Over to Vinay Kamath. Okay, so let's launch into this. Uh, sure. Obviously, the first question would be, what prompted you to write this book? I think it was actually uh, a few things that came together. One was I've long had this strong sense of potential combined with frustration when we don't do the right thing, when we sort of squander that potential. So I've long had this, I mean, for, I don't know, decades. Second, more immediately, when I was president of CI and went around and met people from industry, met people in government, different levels and so on. This sense of potential just was really reconfirmed. And I just said, you know, we really have everything that it takes to play a much bigger place in the world. And not only that, but to, um, uh, you know, to fulfill our own, our own aspirations as a country. Third was actually very simple, practical opportunity. When the pandemic hit, you know, I, I committed to writing the book in 2019. It was uh, supposed to be delivered a year later in, uh, at the end of 2020. <laughs> um, no one knew at the time, neither the publisher nor me, that the pandemic was going to hit. Uh, but when it did, uh, and I found myself not traveling at all. I said, this is a great opportunity to write. So there was a, a, lofty, a, a lofty reason and a very practical reason uh, that came together uh, to make the book happen. Bosco, go ahead. Let's talk about the economy to begin with. After 2011, somehow things didn't quite till that time. It was the boom time, 2003 to 2011. Everything was looking hunky-dory. Even after the financial crisis, we still kind of sort of braced that and we sort of... But after 2011, things started really going downhill. And after 2017, there has been a marked uh, sort of decline. Um, what are your thoughts on that and why why do you think that happened? How, how can we get out of it? And of course, the pandemic also has had a huge, huge blow on the economy. So what are your thoughts on that? So I think post 2011, uh, 2012 onwards, as you, as you, as you mentioned, the, the economy slowed markedly and then it slowed further. It recovered some, I think it recovered some in 2015, 16. 16, yeah. Um, and, and then again, from 2017 onwards, it slowed down uh, much more. I think the in 2012, the slowdown was really led by the investment cycle more than anything else. Uh, investment fell. Uh, I think there was, uh, for various reasons, a combination of um, political uncertainty, really, in 2012 to 14, a sense of drift in the country. And I think all of that fostered this uncertainty, which I think then led to the investment cycle being quite depressed. If you look at what happened after that on investment, no, I think whatever one's views of uh, demonetization, the thing that demonetization did was, again, it, it really reinforced that sense of uncertainty because, you know, uh, it was a shock that came from nowhere. Um, and uncertainty is very damaging to investment because uh, it means that you, you, you lose a sense of uh, predictability. And if you lose a sense of predictability, how do you know you're going, that you're going to get a return on 
uh, on the investment you make. Um, the second thing that I think uh, happened was that we saw export growth drop. Again, starting around 2012, our, you know, export trade to GDP ratio peaked in 2012 at a very high level at over 55%, um, which is uh, of GDP, which is, which is huge, you know, higher than China, higher than, far higher than the US, double the US. And we saw then that trade to GDP ratio fall between 2012 down to around 40% now. Um, and so, and and if you talk to say someone like Sajid Chinoy of J.P. Morgan, Sajid argues that uh, the slowdown that we saw post 2012, the entire slowdown can be explained by the drop in exports as a percentage of GDP. Uh, the entire slowdown. Now, obviously, you have many things that you know some plus, some minus, etc., and you end up with more minuses if the rate falls. But uh, he says you can. If you simply had, if exports had not fallen as a share of GDP, you would not have seen that slowdown. And then more recently, uh, the, the the issues have really been with consumption. And as I think uh, you would have seen uh, recently, there were uh, there were some reports that consumption at the end of last year, at the end of 2021, 22, uh, was at 97% of what it was two years earlier, three years earlier, three years earlier. So, you know, so consumption is, which was our big sustaining growth driver all through the investment slump, um, has also now um, really taken a hit. No question it's taken a hit because of the pandemic. And as the economy revives, as particularly informal employment revives, you know, and, and, and in particular retail, uh, which employs 70 million people in the country, travel and tourism, which employs, uh, again, millions of people in the country, as those sectors revive, and as, therefore, informal employment revives, and, and you know, those 10 million people who migrated back to villages, move back to the cities, I think, as that engine starts turning over again, um, I think the consumption story will start coming back. But as of now, to me, the most troubling part of the Indian economic story is the consumption story, because I think that will have to start firing first. That will then lead to capacity utilization rising, which will start then driving more of an investment cycle. Um, and hopefully, we'll also see uh, a return to a more outward-oriented trade strategy, which can then start triggering um, stronger exports, and, and these three engines could then drive the economy at a much higher rate of growth. Do you see uh, private investment kind of rolling back? That's also been an issue that, uh, you know, though the government says we're creating the environment, private investment, even now, I think what they'll invest now is mostly to kind of make up for existing capacities. So it's a it's a very good question. You know, it's a I'll, I, I can give you I can give you a single data point, but it's a real data point, which is our own company. I mean, we uh, we, we we sell to plants that are trying to get more efficient and we sell to new projects. Um, and if we look at project activity um, without question in 2020, 21, uh, the previous year, because of the pandemic and the lockdowns and so on, uh, investment was it, it almost came to a halt for a period of time yeah? um, because there was, again, so much uncertainty and you, you couldn't move ahead with things. Um, 
we saw that bounce back completely this completely last year in 21 22 and that was very encouraging i mean and we showed growth not only over 2021 but growth over 1920 so now how much of that you know is sustained and is going to continue as of today it looks pretty good it looks like the investment cycle has started to turn now what's driving it is the big question is it because it's not consumption i mean consumption is still where it was three years earlier so what's driving the investment cycle is it things like the pli scheme that's in certain product ranges and certain sectors maybe it's it's having some effect but i'm talking about a fairly broad based set of industries where we're seeing this uh, investment happen maybe it's greater confidence maybe it's the business cycle i don't know what what's going on but it does seem we do seem to be seeing more firming investment happening on the ground and investment intentions uh, coming through i hope that sustains uh, i really hope that sustains uh, exports have also started slowly looking up uh, in the past uh, few few months very much very much i mean you know i think one uh, it would be good to see a really good analysis of the export growth and you know and where is it coming from how much of it is uh, driven by the rise in the oil price um uh, given that that's such a significant uh, part of our exports um, and how much of it is, uh, you know, things like cut diamonds and so on. I mean, you know, what are the, what are the, and, and how much of it is things like steel, you know, where we steel exports and iron ore exports have come back very strongly in recent, uh, in recent times. So uh, it, 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 uh, I mean, I think the potential is, you know, we've, we've crossed 400 billion. Uh, last year, uh, in exports, um, very, very, it's, it's a number to be very happy with, and we hope it sustains. I hope the shift towards greater value-added exports happens simultaneously, though. I, I hope manufactured exports, engineering exports, uh, textile and garment exports um, play a bigger and bigger part in our total export picture. It would be, it would be very good for the economy if it does. You've written about uh, the PLI schemes as well uh, in your book. I mean, do um, you see that kind of giving a boost to, you know, isolated sectors of the economy or do you think we need a kind of an overall overarching kind of theme there? You, you know, I think the, the PLI scheme is intended to deepen supply chains. And I, I think that's a very good objective. Where I worry about the PLI scheme is that it's also accompanied by protection um, for uh, you know tariffs that have been brought in on those same products in many in many cases. Um, now, uh, if those tariffs come with a sell-by date, you know, if you come, uh, as I say in the book, I think that if you have a, a clear and credible schedule of removing those tariffs, that if it's 20% today, the next year it's 15, year after 10, et cetera, et cetera, it goes away in four years, five years, together with the PLI incentive. Um, I think the if then we have the potential of the PLI actually delivering on deepening supply chains, but with the clear message that the objective of PLI is that deepen supply chains, not because you want to make more in India, deepen supply chains because you want to make more in India and be more competitive 
as a result. That competitiveness objective is critical. And the only test of competitiveness is competitiveness. You should be able to compete without tariffs. Bosco, go ahead. Despite the government's best efforts, I mean, both the Modi government and the UPA government before that, I mean, the share of manufacturing is still sort of, you know, stubbornly stuck at that low level. 15%. Yeah, 15%. I mean, we've been trying to get it up to 25, but it's just 16, 17, 16, 17 stuck there. And there's this huge informal economy where, you know, 85% of the workers work there. How do you view this uh, sort of a dichotomy in the Indian economy? And what do you think is the way ahead? You you know, this is is a question that uh, Rakesh Mohan asked two, three times at conferences that I was at with him. And he kept saying, you know, the 1991 reforms were aimed at industry. Why hasn't industry performed better? And, and the answer is, well, industry has performed okay in that the share of manufacturing in GDP stayed at the same level at the time of our highest GDP growth. So manufacturing also grew at roughly the same rate as GDP did. But the share was supposed to go up. Under both the UPA and the NDA, as you mentioned, it was supposed to go up from roughly 15% to 25%. That hasn't happened. It stayed stubbornly at 15%. As I looked at this more and more, at some point in time, things came together. And for me, my explanation is, look, as many have said, Indian manufacturing is more skill and capital intensive than most countries at our level of wealth, at our level of per capita GDP. We tend to get a higher share of total industrial value added from sectors like chemicals and auto and auto components and so on, and a smaller share from more labor intensive, less technology intensive, less capital intensive sectors like garments and footwear and food processing. So we're more skill and capital intensive than most countries at our level of GDP. If you have a skill and capital intensive industrial structure, the only way in which you can have a really vibrant, growing, prospering, rapidly expanding capital intensive industrial structure is if you invest a lot more in technology. So my answer to that question is that the reason that 15% has not budged is because our investments in in in-house R&D from Indian industry have not been what they should be. And there's a whole chapter on that. Yeah, um, you've written a lot on the R&D. And, 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 you know, we invest 0.3% of GDP in in-house R&D. The world average is 1.5%. That's what China spends as well. In fact, a little bit more now. And so we need to scale our investments as Indian industry in in-house R&D by a factor of five. Um, it's not a small difference. I mean, it's a factor of five. You see, you see the gap in various ways. You see the gap in our not being present in certain very technologically vibrant sectors like electronic hardware, uh, electrical machinery, um, IT hardware, um, uh, aerospace, uh, a set of sectors that are among the top 10 sectors that attract R&D investments worldwide. We have a presence in three out of the top 10. That's significant, you know, in pharmaceuticals, in auto, a little bit in IT services. Second, even where we invest in R&D, we invest less as a percentage of sales. The most glaring example is IT services. Our top 10 firms invest 1% of sales in R&D. The top 10 firms in China in IT services invest 8%. Um, 
why the difference? Um, now, you know, when you talk to people, and by the way, the third reason is the is the reason if you ask me, if you talk to Indian industry, um, and I've talked a lot about this uh, with them, the general sense is that in Indian industry, we think we're investing enough in R&D. So, you know, so, so if you don't know there's a problem, you won't fix it. So my purpose in the chapter is not to depress everyone in Indian industry. It's to it's to point out that there's a problem and it's something that we need to do. Dr. Naushad, you wear uh, two hats, right? One as an industrialist and one as an academic. Uh, so you're pretty passionate about education and you have a whole chapter on that. Can you elaborate a little more on this CII University project and what are the educational initiatives you think India needs? So, uh, thanks, Vinay. You know, the uh, I'll, I'll talk about both. Um, maybe first on higher education more generally. Um, you know, what we really need in the country. I mean, we have we've have a very entrepreneurial higher education system. Now, this entrepreneurial higher education system at times is very venal. Um, you know, it's uh, you have politicians, state politicians, setting up institutes. Um, uh, and uh, uh, running them where they have a separate trust that uh, collects cash donations. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a messy sector, but it's a very vibrant sector. I mean, at the end of the day, in these last 30 years, we've gone from producing 40,000 engineers a year to over a million engineers a year. Um, yeah, of variable quality, but a million, over a million engineers a year, relatively small state investment. Uh, in that sector. So, I mean, it's a, it's an entrepreneurial, at the end of the day, it's an entrepreneurial higher education system. What do we need to do? We need to address the quality problem without question. There are real serious issues with the quality of output from many of these private engineering colleges, um, many of the private management institutes and private pharmacy institutes and so on. How do we address quality? One way is that you try to regulate it. Uh, and that's what we've done. We've tried to specify, you know, you need so many acres of land, so many square feet, so many laboratories, etc. And that just hasn't delivered. Uh, so we should give up on trying to use regulation and instead rely on competition and autonomy. So we free the institutes to do what they wish, to admit who they wish, to charge what they wish as long as it's transparent, uh, to have as many students in particular fields as they wish, uh, you know, not 60 in this and 120 in something else. Why do you need to set those limits? Leave it to the Institute to decide. Um, and then ensure that there's good competition between institutes. That will take care of itself in a sense. Now, what is the role of the state? The role of the state then is to provide an assessment that they make public so that parents and kids can decide which institute is worth going to and which is not, which is worth the fees that they're charging, which is not. And I think over time, that will sort the system out. On the CI University project, this was really a project that began now four years ago um, when a group of us who are CI members came together and we said, listen, inst instead of each of us trying to do something small, let's collectively try to do something much more, much more world-class, much more large scale. And we said, let's try to set up collectively uh, a university that over time will be full service and world-class. So the idea is for it to start in Hyderabad uh, under the Telangana State University Act. Um, we've got land identified at the uh, JMR airport development. Um, there's an education zone there. Um, and the uh, uh, 
the idea is to start with uh, a public policy program, a master's in public policy uh, next year, and then to go on the following year in 2024 to uh, a four-year undergraduate program. And the thought is to start with humanities, social sciences, and physical sciences, uh, and only later add professional fields, because we feel that professional fields, engineering, management, are already quite well served in the country. Humanities, social sciences, physical sciences are less well served. So let's start there, and then we'll add fields as we as we go along. Uh, and we're trying to differentiate as much as we can, not only with um, the wider higher education ecosystem, but also with institutes uh, like Ashoka and Kriya and Ahmedabad University. These are great, great, I think, initiatives. Um, and we're trying to uh, differentiate even from them through the universe, through the industry connect, you know, through internships, through professors of practice, uh, through having um, uh, building practical exposure into the actual coursework uh, that students would experience. Who are the industrialists who collaborated on that? As of now, Godrich, Thermax, Chris Krishnan of Infosys, we're there from Forbes Marshall. In the core group, uh, we also have uh, Bharat Puri from Pidalite. Uh, we have Raj Dugar, who represents um, the Fidelity Private Equity uh, Group Eight Roads. Um, we have uh, Muthu Venkatchalam from the Murugopa Group in uh, uh, Chennai. We have Banmali Agrawal from Tata Sons. Uh, Satish Reddy, sorry, from Dr. Reddy's. Uh, I forgot our local representative. <laughs> so, um, and then we have um, uh, Ashok Mishra, who used to be uh, the director of IIT Bombay, uh, and uh, Pankaj Chandra, who used to be IIM Bangalore and is now vice chancellor of Ahmedabad University as well. And Ramesh Mangaleshwaran, uh, who's from McKinsey, uh, based in Chennai also. So it's a very good group. And the intention is to have totally about 20 companies that would between them be the main, uh, the founding group of the university. Um, and then uh, over time, uh, keep adding. Uh, and the goal is that no one company or group of companies really uh, controls the place. Uh, that it becomes a truly independent, autonomous uh, institute um, where uh, the founders have more, as we the way we phrased it, we've said the founders have more responsibility, they don't have more authority. <laughs> so, so CIA itself does not have any investment. So CI, CI would, I mean, CI would get its investment from members in any case. So, yeah. you know, CI, is made up of CI, is, yeah. CI is helping us greatly. Uh, get everything underway. And uh, we'll have an ongoing collaboration with CI, especially in affirmative action. You know, so for, I'll give you two, three examples of the collaboration. You know, so, so CI members work with around 30,000 schools in the country. Um, and many of those schools are in disadvantaged areas. And all of us have said, look, none of us want to start a university for the rich. Uh, you know, what's the point? You know, the rich can send their kids overseas. Um, so, the, so we said that we want to be able to tap into the talent of India. And if we can, then you've got a university that no one can, that no one can really match because no one else has been able to do it. So, if, so how do you do that? So we said, can we identify kids when they're 12, 13, 14 years old? If we can identify them when they're young and then provide them with whatever inputs they need when they're in school, 
so that they can get into the university on merit, get into the university that we're setting up on merit or any other place on merit. Uh, and the expectation is that about 50%, about half of all the students will need some financial aid. So that's the, uh, that's the, the logic that we have. Maybe a quarter of students will need full financial aid and a quarter will need some financial aid and half will be self-paying. That's the, that's the concept as of now. You'll be starting this academic year? Next academic year. Next uh, from academic. 23-24 academic year. So it's kind of modeled on the new age liberal arts universities. Very much so. Very much so. That's the that's the intention. That's the okay. intention. You have popped up around the country, no? Exactly. Very much so. And and I think we need many of these examples. You know, it's a we're too big a country to import our intellectuals. We need to grow our own. Organic, organic intellectuals. Yes, I think so. <laughs> so. Dr. Naushad, I wanted to ask you, you said the CIA, initially you're going to have a focus on humanities and social sciences and all that, but you also said there's going to be a lot of industry interaction. So how, how is this humanities uh, industry interaction, it's, how is that going to play out? Uh, could you just uh, elaborate a little you know, you know, I think more and more, I think people are finding you need contextual skills to to advance any field, even the most text, the most technical. Uh, so you need depth in domain knowledge without question. But you also need breadth and the ability to connect different domains, one with the other to really advance uh, and come up with true good solutions to what's happening in the world. And we are saying, look, there are enough good engineering colleges, enough of a flow of good quality engineers um, coming out of the system that gives you that depth in domain knowledge. What we need to provide are, is the context. Um, and we, so the one of the, one of the intentions is that in the first year, every student will take courses that will teach cultural literacy that colleges around the world do, you know, you read texts and you understand them and so on, but also technical literacy that colleges do not do. And a few have tried, um, but they struggle with it because um, it too easily goes in the direction of teaching mathematics, teaching engineering science and problem sets and so on. And too little teaches an understanding of the technical world around us. And we want to see if we can actually develop a curriculum that's very much it might be quite unique in the technical literacy uh, in the technical technical literacy domain, um, because every student we want to have that comfort with both cultural and technical literacy, so that they can converse with each other to begin with, um, and they can converse with the world and understand the world around them. That's the that's the aspiration. Now we'll 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 have to work on it and make it turn it into reality. So it's a, but, but it's a, it's a good aspiration. So you have a chapter on design thinking, which I found uh, pretty unusual because mostly most books are either focusing on research or a lot on innovation. And, and then you have one on design and design thinking. So do you see, you know, corporate India kind of, kind of accepting design as integral to their businesses? The reason there's a chapter on design is because I sort of came to design accidentally. I came to it out of our own work in our company where and my conviction that it really delivers very well for us as a 
technical engineering company design matters then uh, and then by becoming you know the, the the chair of nid and so on i mean so i came to design sort of from that perspective the sense i have is that there are some companies that are doing using design very effectively in the country and i give some examples mainly in the auto sector so bajaj auto and royal enfield compete on design tata motors and mahindra and mahindra compete in the in the suv market on design and you look at the you look at the ads uh, of any of them um, any of these four companies and you will see that basically they're selling on design um, they're not selling on specifications uh, you know there's a direct appeal to the emotions you know you know some family going off uh, you know into the middle of uh, uh, madhya pradesh to look at animals or something like that which probably the car will never be used for you're appealing in a in a in a in a way uh, to in a very design sense i think we need that in every field it's the way in which we can not only grow really successful companies but we can improve the lives of people by giving them a better product experience um so there's potential to do much better um with if if our companies engage much more actively with design my guess is that there are maybe a hundred good sized indian companies that take design seriously it should be thousands so bosco do you want to wind up with your question on why dr narshad used dr rk lakshman's cartoon oh, yes yes yeah 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 <laughs> definitely yeah. yeah yeah i mean the book is it's like sort of uh, lakshman's cartoon really sort of they say yeah. their own story and it it really sort of lends uh, to your narrative so would you like to uh, Well, I, that that was actually a very interesting part of your book. I, I found that very so, interesting. So, could you? Uh, how did you hit hit upon this idea? And so, there's a little bit of history there. Um, years ago, I uh, I took a course on financial financial accounting. I think um, uh, when I was an undergraduate, and the the professor of the course uh, said that this was such a boring subject that the only way he could get his students to actually look at the handouts uh he was using was to put uh, a cartoon on on each handout uh and i thought that this was a brilliant idea and so when i started teaching uh i used to put cartoons on my handouts all my handouts uh and i always used lakshman cartoons um because they illustrated what we were talking about so really effectively and then i started using lakshman cartoons as a base for giving talks on the indian economy uh this would this was in the uh this was in the late 80s and early 90s um and i would give the entire talk using just a set of lakshman cartoons no other no other no other uh slides i mean these were literally transparencies i used to sit and make these transparencies on photocopying machines um and so lakshman cartoons have always been a part of my thinking um and uh, i think they illustrate some of the essence of what we are about in a really accurate precise way and i have some of my favorite lakshman cartoons in the book you know so when you talk about hypocrisy you know it's very easy to talk about hypocrisy but when you see a cartoon of you know a minister living in a palatial home saying um, of course socialism is applicable to us also but we promised it to the people and we must give it to them first i mean you know that gets the message across in a in a very pointed clear way it seems to me 
or you know showing distrust between industry and government um which was so strong in the 70s and 80s um and lakshman caught it so perfectly and we're seeing a little bit of that return uh today that legacy continues uh and we see it resurfacing today and i think using those cartoons is a way of making a very precise i think point and making the point come alive um in a very in a very nice way in a in a funny way uh so humor helps uh i think especially when you're talking about very sensitive issues um you know there was a there's a famous story about these two partners gilbert and sullivan who used to write operators in victorian britain and the one of their most famous operators was the mikado uh which was set in japan um but it was set in japan but it was all about the the british not only the british british politics of the day but Brit- a particular british government that there were characters in the play that were based on serving ministers in the current british government uh this is in the i think 1880s or 90s or something like that um and they could only get away with it by setting the play in japan humor is a great way of uh, getting away with really pointed criticism um which would otherwise be considered you know this is too sensitive um you know uh but to doing it in a nice way because it makes you laugh so for example you know when you have a father carrying his son in his hand you know and walking away from two people saying you know uh next time just say i want to be a doctor when i want to grow up do not say i want to be a doctor and emigrate <laughs> you know <laughs> so yeah so thank you so much dr shard it was wonderful chatting with you If you like what you heard share the link check out our site thehindubusinessline.com and watch our videos on youtube.com/thehindubusinessline that is youtube.com/thehindubusinessline thank you for tuning in you'll hear more from us next time